Thank you. Thank you, Veronica. Our first testimony in our new worship building. Praise God. Um, yeah, that was cool. <laughs> Today is uh, March 26th, right? March 26th, that means it's the last uh, Sunday in March. Uh, I failed to announce this, but next Sunday will be the first Sunday of April, which means we'll come to communion. Pastor Daniel is going to be preaching. But that also, well, doesn't mean anything else, but um, the sophomore class in our youth ministry is going to be providing food uh, in the cafe next week, and they're going to make it available in order to support our building project. Um, they're making a recipe that uh, is kind of the harvest version of the halal guys. Um, I don't know if you've had the halal guys in, in New York and they're coming down here, but uh, somebody said, and this is what I was asked to pitch, <clears throat> Somebody said this was the best SNF, that's our youth ministry gathering, as the best SNF meal ever was when the halal food was made. And so that's going to be available next Sunday, so please make sure that you're there. Uh, the Sunday after that, April 9th, is uh, Palm Sunday, and then April 16th is Easter, Resurrection Sunday. So we're getting closer and closer. We're almost there. Um, this is really exciting stuff. So what that means right now is that we're right in the middle of what's called March Madness. Anyone hear that? March Madness? Like, I know what that is. Okay, a few of us, good. March Madness is this huge basketball tournament, 66 basketball teams, college basketball, and they're all trying to win the championship. And I think they're down to like the last, what, <clears throat> eight teams? Six teams, four teams, I don't know, something like that. But they're down to, and then next weekend, next weekend is the final four. March Madness is like a crazy time for me. It's like the second best time of the year outside of Christmas season and Advent. Uh, this right here, like we're in the middle of a great season where uh, Easter is coming up and we're in the middle of March Madness. To me, one of the people who epitomizes the madness of this season is a man named LeVar Ball. Does anyone know the name LeVar Ball? Okay, this guy is crazy. He's a nutty, nutty guy. Uh, he's a basketball dad. That means his three sons are all basketball players. Uh, Lonzo, Leangelo, and Lamelo Ball. They call them the Ball Brothers. Lonzo Ball is, uh, just finished his freshman year at UCLA or finished his first basketball season at UCLA, and he's going to be one of the first players picked in the NBA draft. He's very good. Uh, he has a younger brother who's a senior in high school now named Leangelo, and he's going to be going to UCLA next year. And then they have a little brother who's a sophomore in high school named Lamelo Ball, who's also committed to go to UCLA. The funny thing about the dad, Lavar, he's like a big mouth. He's a businessman. He talks a lot, and he's getting all kinds of publicity because some of the things that he says. One of the things he said was that my son Lonzo is better than Steph Curry. Right? Steph Curry's like a really great NBA player. And LeVar said, my son is better than Steph Curry. And everybody's laughing. He said, the only team he's going to play for is the Los Angeles Lakers. The only team he's going to play for, he won't play if any other team drafts him. And then he said, he's going to be better than Magic Johnson, who was like the iconic Los Angeles Laker, the point guard extraordinaire, one of the best players to ever play the game. But his dad said, my son is going to be better than Magic Johnson. He said a bunch of other things. And he promised in... November that UCLA was going to win this March Madness tournament, that they would win the NCAA championship, which is not going to happen because they lost the other night. But he said a bunch of different things, and so there's a trending hashtag meme on Twitter 
Twitter or whatever it is uh, that social media feeds uh, called LeVar Ball Says. And it's uh, just a whole bunch of funny things. LeVar Ball Says and then some extraordinary uh, feat of athleticism. But one of the funniest things that he said, uh, it was on a, a show with Stephen A. Smith on ESPN. Uh, he said, I can beat Michael Jordan one-on-one. So if it was just on the court, me and Michael Jordan, LeVar Ball said, I can beat Michael Jordan. And so nobody, obviously, everyone is like, you're blowing smoke. You're so funny. You're so silly. Stephen A. Smith, one of the hosts of the show, said, there's something wrong with you. Something's wrong with you. Are you kidding me? And he said, five on five, Michael could beat me. But one on one, I'll beat Michael. He will need help to cover me. He who averaged two points a game when he played in college for some tiny little school. And then he said, (laughs) Stephen A. Smith is incredulous. He's like yelling at him, you're a fool, you're so dumb. Why are you saying things like this? Do you know what you're talking about? And then he said, one-on-one, I've never lost. I am undefeated. He's saying for his entire life, anytime one person has played against him, he said he's never lost in his life. This is hilarious that I've never lost against any opponent. And I'll tell you what, Last Sunday, when I walked out of here, I felt like LeVar Ball. We heard this amazing promise that God gave that no temptation is going to overtake you. That God will never give you a temptation that you can't stand up under. And even when you are tempted, he's going to provide a way out of it so that you're not defeated by it. You have an assurance of victory if you look for it. That's the promise that God gave. And so I walked out of here saying, I'm going to be undefeated, victorious. I'm not going to lose. And maybe somebody would, Olivia, probably say, what you, something wrong with you. What's wrong with you? That only lasted that sense of victory a very short while because come Sunday afternoon, temptation came and I fell into anger or guilt or judgment or whatever it was. And I started thinking all these negative thoughts about situations and people, and I started complaining. And I realized, holy cow, God promised that I would be victorious against temptation. But what happened when I fell into temptation? The question we asked last week is, what happens when you're tempted? The question we asked this week is, what happens when temptation gets the better of you and you fall? What do you do then? And we see in the pages of Scripture an amazing promise Because God knew that even though in any temptation that comes our way, we can overcome, but he knows that we will fall and we will fail. And so in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, we see one of the greatest promises that God gives to his people, gives to his children. 1 John chapter 1, we're going to read verses 8 through 10 and see what happens when we do fall. What happens when we do fall into sin? What happens when we do give into temptation, when the assured victory is not the outcome of our lives. First John chapter 1, we're going to read verses 8 through 10. This is God's word written by the beloved apostle John, one of the best friends of Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. First John chapter 1, we're going to read verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> and this is God's word. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins 
and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, God, out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. This is God's word. So last week we saw, hey, in any, any situation, any situation that you face, in any temptation, God's saying there's a way out of it so that you can be victorious. It's never going to be too much for you. You're never going to have a point in your life where you said, I couldn't do anything about it. I just had to give in to sin. <clears throat> but there's grace for us when we do. Two things. I just want to look at two things this morning that come out of this text. The first is a lie, and then the second is a promise. Here's the first thing. The lie is that to be accepted, I must cover up my sins. Okay, here's the lie that we oftentimes believe. To be accepted, I must cover up my sins. Here's why it's a lie. It says in verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So we see this in, in, in all of life. We're not, we're not people who naturally walk around flaunting our failures, our weaknesses, our sin, our mistakes, our shortcomings. We don't walk around doing that, right? Especially like, I don't know, if you, uh, one, of our, one of our sisters yesterday, uh, she's a member of our church, Sori, she got engaged to be married to, a, uh, to her fiancé, Sam. And it was all, you know, you may have heard about it because it's all over social media and Facebook and, and Instagram. And you see, and she's like, oh, look, they, you know, I said yes or whatever it is. And, and Sam sent a few of us texts and, and pictures. Oh, look, she said yes. I've never seen a person post a picture of a ringless finger saying, she said no. And I've never seen that before. Nobody walks around flaunting their failures in that way. You don't see bumper stickers on the back of some minivan driving throughout Orlando that says, my child is a D student at Windermere Elementary School. <laughs> Nobody says that, right? My child is an honor roll student. That's what we say. Nobody put, I've seen this. Some of our high school students, some of our folks who are applying to get into college and graduate schools have posted pictures of acceptance letters to universities and colleges and grad schools. It's awesome. Praise the Lord, I got in. This is awesome. God is so good. But I haven't yet seen somebody post a rejection letter saying, yes, number 10, rejection. And no one says that because we're not good at flaunting our failures and our weaknesses and our flaws. Why? Because we don't want to be defined by those things. We don't want to be defined by our failures. We don't want to be defined by our weaknesses. We don't want to be defined by our deficiencies. There's a basketball player. There's the last basketball reference I'm going to make today. He's a coach now, but he used to be a player, one of the best players. His name was Jason Kidd. He was a point guard, means he passed and was a great passer. But his friend who grew up with him, a guy named Gary Payton, also a great basketball player, liked to talk trash. He said, Jason, my friend Jason, cannot shoot a jumper. In basketball vernacular, a jumper, you can just call that a J. He said, my friend Jason doesn't have a jumper, so I'm going to call him Asen because he's got no J. Jason Kidd, a great player, doesn't want to be defined by his weakness. He wants to be defined by his strength, and so do we. So we don't walk around talking about all the mistakes that we've made and all the failures that we made and all the rejections and all of the uh, pain and all the brokenness. We don't walk around flaunting that kind of stuff because we'd rather be defined by our strength and not by our failures or our weaknesses. We want to be labeled and defined and known and recognized for the good things, the strong points about us, not for our weak points. 
a microcosm of life in general is what we, you know, one of the greatest ways to find out about people is social media. I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, there's a, a video, I don't know what, uh, what forum it's on now, but it's called A Millennial Marriage Proposal. Have you seen this? This is hilarious. It's just talking about what marriage proposals in our day of, in our millennial generation are like. It's, it's this guy and this girl, and they're, they're dating, and they're up on this, like, beautiful mountain trail, and you've got mountains, and you've got a city skyline, and they're like, oh, this is gorgeous. It's breathtaking. It's beautiful, and all these things. And, and while the girl, Madison, is marveling at the beauty of nature, she turns around to say something, and then the dude is on his knee, and he's got a ring. It says, Madison Marie, will you marry me? She's like, oh my gosh, honey, oh my gosh. And she's like, you, you got a photographer, right? And he's like, yeah, he's over there. <clears throat> and so she looks back at him, and she's like, I, I don't know how this is going to look when we share it on Instagram. Can you come closer, come closer? So he comes closer, and she's like, you know what? You're, you're getting a shot of the back of my head. Do you think you can come around this way? And, and then he's about to take it, and he, so he gets on his knee. Madison, and she's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, the sun is shining in my face. It's so hot outside today. I'm so sweaty. Can you, can you just turn around and, and change the angle? And, and then he gets on his knee. Madison, and he's like, wait, can we get the skyline in the background? And she's directing all of these things, and at the end of this long thing, he's like, what do you want? He's like, well, I'm thinking La La Land. As she directs the people all around and the stagehands and all that stuff to get the perfect, the perfect engagement because it's not about the moment so much. It's about the image of the moment that we share with other people. He gets on his knee, Madison Marie, hold up. I don't really like my middle name. Can you take out my middle name? And so at the end of it all, you see her looking at her hand. She's like, oh, it's so beautiful. It's so amazing. She's not looking at the ring. She's looking at how many likes she's getting on social media. Because this is what we do, isn't it? We want to sterilize our lives to take away all of the things that would make us look bad so that we can only present that which is good. Because we think this lie that in order for me to be accepted, I've got to cover up my flaws. It's why Instagram took off in popularity, isn't it? Because it was one of the first media forums, to not only be able to post and uh, to take and, and, and upload pictures, but there are these things that came with it called filters. Like, oh my gosh, filters. So many different filters that could cover up all of your flaws. And so it began to take off. What do you do? What do you do when someone takes a picture of you and you don't like it because it shows your glaring imperfections? What do you do? But here's what some of us do. We blame other people. Uh, Wednesday night, Brother Eugene, Shepherds of Thailand House Church, was sharing at our prayer meeting. And he talked about how when he got a bad picture, he would blame them. Your camera's too weak. Why did you take my hair out? Why did you add 30 pounds onto me? What's up with all this stuff? That's a bad angle. Why are you letting the light shine off of me like that? This is bad. We blame other people for our flaws and our imperfections sometimes when we get that picture, don't we? Others of us, we try and cover it up. If we've got a big pimple on our cheek or our chin or our nose, we put a smiley face over it, (laughs) put a little Pokemon on it, or that's where we'll strategically place the caption, good times with loved ones or whatever it is that we write. We cover up all that stuff. Others of us, we edit it out. I, I, I saw on, I Googled yesterday, 10 apps that you must have to cover your facial imperfections. That if you've got yellow teeth, you can whiten your teeth. 
If you're not smiling, if you're frowning, you can turn that frown into a smile. Right? Some of you are going to go download these apps now. Watch. Bunch of different apps that you can get in order to edit out the flaws and imperfections of our lives. Why? Because we think, man, if people see this, they're not going to like who I am. And the worst thing that we do, if we just get a picture and we can't possibly fix it up, we just delete it. This is what we do. Because deep in our hearts, there's a part of us that says people will like me more if they don't see these flaws about my life. People will accept me more if they don't realize these things that are freakishly wrong, in my opinion, of who I am. And so we begin to believe this lie that I've got to cover up all of my things and we only put our best foot forward so that people see that about us. And then we become jarred into another story when we watch things like Beauty and the Beast. Holy cow, that dude is uglier than I am, but he got Emma Watson. That's crazy. And we begin to think, hey, is it really true? That someone can see all of the nastiness in my life, all of the weaknesses, all the flaws, the things that nobody else knows about, and they could still love me? Is that really possible? They would accept me, they would embrace me, and they would say that I am their one and only? And then we quickly dismiss it as we walk out that movie theater saying it's just a fairy tale. There's no such thing as happily ever after. And so we go on covering up our flaws in this way. But there's a problem. There's a problem. As much as we run from our flaws, our failures, our errors, our mistakes, our imperfections, our weaknesses, our brokenness, they will always catch up to us. It's like a shadow. My little boy Elijah really loves me and I love him. And sometimes he just likes to follow me around. And a few weeks ago, one of our sisters said, Elijah is like your shadow. He goes, wherever you go, and even if you run away, he knows where you're going, and he's going to find you, and he's going to eat I'm just kidding. He's going to find you, and he's going to catch up to you. This is what guilt is in our lives, too. We can run. We can run from our flaws. We can run from our imperfections. We can cover them up, but like a shadow, they're going to catch up to us. When we finally get tired of playing the charade and we stop, they're right there with us. Here's a funny thing. We do that with God, too. It's funny because God knows everything about us, and yet we still do this. Adam, where are you? What are you doing? He started blaming other people, and this is what we do, too. Just like we do when we get a bad picture, we do this with God. We blame other people. Don't you? I was at a bookstore in, in, in Winter Park and there was a, a bunch of signs on a rack, and one of the signs said, if you knew my family, you would understand. <laughs> Basically, it's saying, it's my family's fault. My family's fault. My dad was an alcoholic. My grandfather was homosexual. That's why I'm the way that I am. That's not my story, but some of us feel that way. It's their fault. It's because they didn't take care of me, because they were working all the time. It's because they were abusive, and we blame other people for the reason why we are the way that we are. We, too, like to cover up our failures and our shortcomings. When I was little, I think it was in fourth grade, I got a D on my report card. I promise you my parents weren't flaunting that. you know why? Because I took that report card and I covered up that D and I turned it into a B. <laughs> Didn't really work because it's not like a perfect match. And so that quickly got uncovered and I got the beat down of a lifetime. My parents weren't putting up a, my child is a D student at Dogwood Elementary, I promise you that. We try to cover up our sins before God too. We try to edit out our mistakes. 
try to say, it wasn't that bad. Yeah, you know, if I spin it this way, it doesn't seem as bad as other people make it out to be. We deny, we delete our sins before the Lord too, don't we? No, it wasn't that big a deal. Yeah, you could call it that, but no, it wasn't really that. Everyone else is doing it. If everyone is doing it, if the majority opinion is saying this is true, then how can it be wrong? God, everyone else was doing it. Even these Christian leaders were doing it. My house church shepherd was doing it. My pastor was doing it. How could it be wrong? And we begin to deny and to delete and to cover up all of these things. And yet the funny thing is, God knows. If we claim to be without sin, we make him out to be a liar. Because he sees all of that stuff. In fact, in Isaiah 59, 2, it says, Your sins have separated you from your God. And we can play the charade all we want that I'm all right before God, I'm clean, I got nothing to hide. But the reality is that your sin, unconfessed, has created a massive wedge in your relationship with God. In the same way that if, I, if Olivia and I get into an argument, 95% of the time it's my fault. And if I don't go to her and confess, there's going to be an iciness in our relationship and we'll be ships passing in the night. The relationship is still there. We're still married. Your relationship with God, my relationship with God is still there, but we're like ships passing in the night if we cover up our sin. Why do we do this? I think it's partly because of this simple idea. Maybe if I pretend it's not a big deal, then God will pretend it's not a big deal. Maybe if I cover it up and I don't make it out to be that big, then maybe God will do the same thing. But then we begin to realize that's not how God operates because a God of justice demands that justice is exacted for the sins that we've committed. In fact, deep in our hearts, we need this to be true. Deep in our hearts, every single one of us need this to be true. How can it not be true? Where in the world is our hope if there is not a God of justice in a world that is overflowing with injustice and crime that goes unpunished? There's got to be a God. Where's the hope if not for that? But on the other hand, our greatest desire also becomes our deepest fear. Because then we have to ask, where is my hope if there's a God of justice and I am a person with so much sin in my life? Where's the hope? See, here's the lie that maybe some of us are believing today. In order for me to be accepted, I need to cover up my sin. But let me move on to the promise. Second thing we see, here's the promise. If you uncover your sin before God, God will cover it up forever. Good night, guys. This is good news right here. Man, if I cover up my sin, I think I'm going to be accepted, but that's the biggest lie because God says, if you think you have no sin in you, you make me out to be a liar. That's what God is saying. Saying, here's what you do. You don't cover up your sin. You don't blame other people. You don't excuse it. You don't deny it. You don't doubt it. Here's what you do. Here's what it says in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It says if you uncover that before God, if you bring that before him, he's going to 
He'll be the one to delete all of that. He'll be the one to cover up all that. He'll be the one to make it all good and to forget it forever. And some of us desperately need to hear this because we're running so fast away from the things that we've done when we were young. Some of us have things that we haven't even told our spouses about. We have done things that we haven't told our boyfriend, girlfriend about. We've got things that we haven't told our kids about, our parents about. Our best friends don't know because we think if they know, man, they're not going to want to be my friend. If they knew everything, everything, everything about me, they wouldn't give me the time of day that they do now. And we believe this lie that in order for me to be accepted, I need to cover that stuff up. God says, no, that's not how you do it. Here's how you do it. You uncover it up before me, and I'll cover it up as far as the east is from the west. I will remember it no more. I will forget it. I will bury it in the sea of forgetfulness, and I'll hang a sign that says no fishing is allowed ever. There's no condemnation, Romans 8.1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how do we do this? One pastor out in California, Rick Warren, he says, here's how the right and wrong way to go about forgiveness, asking, confessing. He says, we don't need to beg for forgiveness. That's what some of us do. We feel so guilty, so ashamed that we beg God, say, God, please, please, if you have it in your heart to forgive me. You know what? God sent his son to die on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins. You're not waiting on God. God is waiting on you to come to him and ask for forgiveness. Do you understand this? He is so much more ready and willing to forgive you your sins than you are willing to go to him. He's just waiting. He's waiting for you to come. You don't need to beg him or twist his arm or say, God, please do this. He says, no, I was waiting for you to come. My son paid the ultimate price so that you would not carry that weight of sin and guilt and shame on you any longer. You have been forgiven, child. Live in that freedom. You don't beg, nor do you bargain with God. God, I'll make a deal with you. If you could only forgive me, then here's what I'll do for you. Here's what I'll do. I'll go to church every week. I'll pray every day. I'll read the Bible every day. You know what? I'll invite a friend to church one day before I die. I'll do that. Let's make a bargain, God. Or we try to bribe God. God, please get me out of this. Get me out of this one. Get me out of this one. If you do, I promise everything I am. I'll even go to Africa. (laughs) I'll even go to China. I'll even go whatever you want me to do. Whatever you want me to do. And we begin to bargain. He says, no. That's the wrong way to ask forgiveness. Here's the right way. He says, believe. That's it. Believe. That Jesus Christ is bigger than your sins. Whatever you've done. God knows all the things you've put into your body. God knows all the things that have come out of your body. God knows all the people you've spent a dark night with. God knows all the people you've put your hope into. God knows all of that stuff. He says, all you need to do is believe. You don't know some of the things that I've done, though. That's right. And here's the good news. Nobody needs to know. And it doesn't matter what we've done because Jesus is bigger than your sins, bigger than your failures, bigger than your mistakes, bigger than your shortcomings, bigger than your drug addiction, bigger than your sexual addiction, bigger than whatever it is that you think is too big. How do you know? Because he says, look, if you confess your sins, he's faithful. 
Do you remember we talked about this? If you've been with us, Genesis 3.15, the very first promise of Lent, God said, I'm going to send a Savior. Because we fell into temptation in the Garden of Eden and we sinned, God said, I'm going to send a Savior. And he's going, to do, he's going to make all of this stuff right. And he's going to forgive everything that you've ever done. The first people heard a promise. And God is saying here, thousands of years after that, he's saying, here's my faithfulness to my promise. It's not about you. It's not about what you've done. It's not about God's forgiveness knows no quantity or quality of sin. Right? Jesus is bigger than your sins. God is faithful. Sometimes I ask my children to do things that they don't want to do because it's the best thing for them. And in order to get them to do it, sometimes I will have to give them a promise. So our boy Elijah, for the first few weeks of Korean school this semester, did not like it to the point where he would cry and cry and cry. So the teacher would say, okay, pastor, you can come and sit with Elijah. Sound like sitting in this little chair with like these four-year-old kids and I'm learning as much as the kids are because of my language level in Korean and Elijah's sitting there and I'm saying, Elijah's laughing at the jokes that the kids are making. So I say, Elijah, I'm going to leave. He's like, no, don't leave, don't leave. I would sit down with him and then I would finally, when he turned around, I would run out and he would chase after me and then the, the teacher would grab him. Second week, third week, three, three weeks this happened. I, kept, I, I called Olivia. I was like, hey, you want to take the kids to Korean school this week? I don't want to take them. So Elijah won't let me leave. And so I made a deal with Elijah. I said, Elijah, let me, let me make, uh, daddy's going to make you a promise. There is this, he's gotten back into Paw Patrol. We're like really excited about this. Gotten into Paw Patrol. And in, the, in between, from the time he started watching this little children's show to the time he started picking it back up, a new character was introduced named Tracker. And Elijah realized, I don't have a tracker toy. I've got everybody. I've got Chase. I've got Marshall. I've got Rubble. I've got Rocky. I've got all these other ones. But I don't have tracker. I said, can I have tracker? I said, Elijah, listen. If you go into Korean school for the next five weeks and you don't cry, you can have tracker. I said, five weeks? Yeah. Do you think you can do that? Daddy, that's hard. That's a long time. <laughs> Elijah, tracker, tracker. <laughs> get him like five weeks okay I'm gonna do my best I'm gonna do my best so week one he just waltz in with his big old backpack twice as big as he is he gets in he's like bye daddy and he walks in like yes second week successful third week successful fourth fifth week he does it. he says daddy is this week five do I get my tracker now what kind of a dad would I be I said, Elijah, ha, 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 I was just kidding. I just wanted you to go to Korean school. Just wanted you to go, ha, ha. Now you can start crying again because I think you like Korean school now. That would be stinky. That would be terrible, Dad. That would be awful for me because I want to be faithful to my promise that I made to Elijah. Many years ago, the perfect father asked his perfect son, to do something that was very difficult. So will you go into this room? Will you go into this world that's dark, that's scary? I will be with you until the very end, and then I will let go of you, and you'll be slaughtered like a lamb on a cross. What kind of a father 
would look at his son and look at you and me and say, you know what? My son paid the price, but your sins cannot be forgiven. Because for some odd reason, the, the sacrifice of my son was not enough to secure the promise. Listen, whenever we say, no, my sin is too big, you're not making a statement about yourself. We're making a statement against the perfection of our God and his faithfulness and against the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as a sacrificial lamb in our stead. Whenever we say, oh, but God can't forgive this. God can't do that. God can't forgive this sin. It's a claim against the faithfulness of God. God says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful to forgive. Not only to forgive, but he says, but to also purify us from all unrighteousness. That means not only are you legally forgiven, forensically forgiven in a court of law, but he remembers it no more. You are purified from that. You don't have the stain of guilt over you any longer. I read about a couple recently. They'd been married for about 15 years, and after 15 years, they started getting into arguments. They started fighting and and arguing and complaining about each other. And so they decided, you know what, this is too much. We're complaining about every little thing. You're complaining about every little thing. I'm complaining about every little thin thing. So why don't we do this? Let's just, let's make a box, a fault box, one for you and one for me. And every time I do something that offends you, you write it on a piece of paper and you put it in that box for me. And every time you do something wrong that offends me, I'll write it down. I'll put it in your box, the fault box. Then at the end of the month, we'll talk about it so that we're not always yelling at each other, fighting, complaining about each other. So, okay, maybe that'll bring about a little bit of of, a modicum of peace within the home. So they did that. The wife did hers and the husband did his and it got the end of the month. They said, okay, why why don't we talk about this? And I think that was somewhat helpful. Let's talk about it. So the husband said, shall I read mine first, what you have against me? She said, Sure. He opened it up, and it was like overflowing with all this stuff. (laughs) Threw the socks on the floor, right? Didn't put the dirty laundry in the hamper. You left that top off the peanut butter jar, all these different things. He's like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I didn't know I disappointed you in all of these areas. He got to the end of it, and he's like, I'm sorry. Honey, I'm sorry. He said, would you like to read yours now? She's like, not really, but I'll do it. She got the box, she opened it up, and it was overflowing with stuff. Every single one said the same thing. He said, I love you. I love you. I love you. Rick, can you do this for your wife this week? I love you. (laughs) He decided that he wasn't going to count her sins against her, that he would remember them no more. This is what God does. When he says, you want to see all the ways in which you've offended me, here, take it. You open it up. And there, your sin is there, but over all of that with the blood of Christ, I love you, I love you, I love you. On what basis does God forgive? It says, he, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and... Psalm 51, the magnum opus as it relates to purity, confession, forgiveness in the Old Testament. David, after committing the ultimate sin of of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her wife, of her husband. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. And the first thing he says, Psalm 51 verse 1, is have mercy on me, O God. 
He pleaded the he didn't He couldn't beg for the justice of God because justice would mean David gets killed a hundred times over for all of the blood that was shed. He says, have mercy on me. But here when you come to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, what does it say? He doesn't say he is faithful and merciful. What does it say? Right, this is crazy. You come forward into the New Testament times. It says he is faithful and just. In other words, when you bring all of your junk before the Lord God, God says, if you do that, then justice dictates that I will forgive you for all of your sins and remember it no more. How is that just? Isn't the very definition of justice, the punishment must fit the crime. You do the time, crime, you got to do the time. But I didn't do anything. All I do is confess because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, Jesus is the one that David didn't have. David is the one who he pleaded on behalf of the Savior who would come. That's why he talked about hyssop and blood and goats and all of these things as a pointer that one day a perfect sacrificial lamb would come and take away the sins of the world. And John is saying, we've seen him, and he's Jesus. And because Jesus took our place, all of the punishment for every sin of every person was laid on Jesus Justice was already enacted. And so for God to not forgive you and me, if you're a child of God, would be unjust. Right? This is how God sees you. That for you to have to pay something for the forgiveness of your own sins means that God is asking for a double payment. Sometime back last year, I was uh, officiating a wedding up in Atlanta, and the day before the wedding... The bride and groom said, hey, we're going to give you and Olivia a couple's massage at this place and uh, just go at this time. They'll have your name down. And so we went and we got our massage and then we went to meet up a group of our friends at, at, at uh, lunchtime. The bride and groom said, hey, how was the massage? Was there any issues? And we said, no, it's fine. We just walked in, said our name, got a massage, walked out, paid the money. And they said, that's fine. She's like, wait, 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 what do you mean you paid the money? I said, yeah, we, uh, they said that we had to pay whatever, whatever. They gave us a good deal though. She said, no, 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 no. We already paid for that. I said, no, that's not what they said. They said that it hadn't been paid. And they got really upset. They said, you know what? We paid. So ultimately, a double payment was made for what you got. And so everybody who knew that story said, what kind of bleep, bleep, bleep are those people who knew that payment had been made, but they demanded another payment? God is not like that. He doesn't demand a double payment for your sins. Think this is how you stand before God. He has forgiven you because of what Christ has done. If the mercy, listen, if, if through mercy God enacted justice on his son and he took all of the wrath and punishment for our sin away from us, then all that's left between us and God is his everlasting kindness and love and grace. That's God's posture towards his children. We don't live in fear and shame and cowering, wondering if God loves us. If the wrath of God has been satisfied, then the only thing left for God to shower upon us is his kindness, and it is his kindness, Romans 2, 4 says, that leads us to repentance. Here's what Tim Keller says. He says, if kindness indeed leads you to confession and repentance, then it will lead you whenever you sin to hate your sin. 
But if you don't see kindness, if guilt or fear leads you to repentance, then every time you repent and confess, you will not hate the sin, you will hate yourself. Can I ask you, when you think about your sin, does it lead you to hate yourself as you confess that to God? If you do, then we have to go back and re-understand the promise of God. God hates our sin, but he loves you with an everlasting love. A kindness-driven repentance will lead to a hatred of our sin. A fear-induced confession will lead to a hatred of ourselves. So what are you hating as you come before God? Here's what happens when we confess. Philip Yancey, great author, great preacher on grace, says that for every child of God, God holds us up by a string, and every time we sin, we cut that string. Not of relationship, but of fellowship. Our fellowship with God gets severed. But whenever we confess... God takes that string and he ties a knot so that every time we confess, we get closer and closer to God. This is confession, guys. It's not a bad thing. It's not a dirty word. In fact, this is how we grow in intimacy with God. Jesus paid it all for us. The wrath of God removed. All that's left is his loving kindness towards us. And his invitation is, hey, you don't need to cover it up. If you uncover it before me, I promise you, I'll cover it up as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. Let's pray. Is there any uh, unconfessed sin in your life, brothers and sisters? Anything in your life that you're too scared to bring before the Lord God? Maybe you can imagine your older brother, Jesus. Sometimes when a little sibling gets in trouble and they're scared to death to tell their parents, an older sibling will walk with them and say, I'll go with you. Maybe you're scared to come before your father. Here, your older brother, Jesus, holds out nail-scarred hands to say the price was paid already. Dad's not mad at you. He loves you. I'll go with you, and I will speak on your defense. I will speak on your behalf. I will say, Father, the price has been paid. Your son, your daughter is scared, but would you hold him in your everlasting arms of love? And when you do, I promise you, I promise you, according to the promise of God, God's not going to hit you. He's not going to yell at you. He's not going to be angry at you. He's going to invite you to come into the most amazing grace-filled, forgiveness-drenched, love-overflowing embrace that you could know. And every time we confess, we get a little bit closer to God. Can we do that? Let's spend a few moments right now coming before the Lord God. Lord, I need you. Father, I need you. Father, I need you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. This is, again, a promise for those who are children of God. If you have not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ to be the forgiver of your sins, God is here now. He says, don't be afraid. Uncover your sin. Uncover your heart. While we all pray together for a couple moments, I just want to invite and maybe speak to those of us in here who are not yet followers of Jesus. You have not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ. Today can be your day. God is here with you. He wants to bring you into his family. In a couple moments, I'm going to give us the opportunity to do that. Do you feel that God has been speaking to your heart? 
that he's wanting you to open your heart to him. Let's spend a couple moments right now just thinking about that, praying about that, just talking to God, examining your heart. Do I need a forgiver of my sins in my life? See, once you get your relationship with God right and you know who you are because of what he's done, and every other relationship begins to fall into place. The relationship with God is the most important relationship, and from that flows every earthly relationship here. So let's spend a couple moments in prayer, maybe in a minute or two. I'll just give an invitation. If there's anyone here who says, I want to give my life to Jesus today, and we'll pray together as as a group. But let's pray. Let's just talk to God for a few moments, quietly, loudly, however you want to pray. Let's pray for a couple moments together. you're here today you just feel like in your heart just feel like the Lord God if he's real but something has been kind of stirring in me and I want to put my trust in Jesus Christ to be the forgiver of my sins see all of us in whatever sphere of life right if we're a student We think there's these Ten Commandments that I need to do in order to get into academic heaven. And if I break some of these commandments, then I'll be destined to academic hell. Same thing relationally. Ten rules, ten commandments to relationally be in heaven. If I fail in any of these ways, my relationship will be hellish. All that comes from an inner desire, an understanding that we too want to reach perfection. We want to reach heaven. And God gave us Ten Commandments, but we failed time and time again. And so God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we failed to live. And then He died on the cross, the death that we deserve to die. But He said, I will be your substitute so that whoever believes and trusts in me can find forgiveness and receive the blessing that only the perfect Son of God deserved. Today, if you're here and you feel like, you know what, I need that Jesus in my life. I've made a mess of my life, or maybe your life is great, but you just realize there's still something that's missing in you. I need a, I need a new master in my life, someone to lead me and to guide me in ways that I can't. If that's you and, and, and you want to say, I need Jesus in my life, and I want to take that step to put my trust in him. I'm not going to put you on the spot or anything like that, but if you just, man, if that's you, just ask from where you are as the rest of us pray and just have our business with the Lord God. If that's you, I just ask you to raise your hand from where you are and just simply slip up your hand. That's cool. Yeah, yeah praise God. Okay, see you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, praise God.
God. This is, you know, at some point, you know, we will come to a time of, yeah, I need to make a decision, either for God, against Him. And if that's, you know, the Lord calling you now, it's great. Yeah, praise God. Yeah. Yeah. So there have been a couple folks who have indicated that they want to put their trust in Jesus. Praise the Lord for that. If there's anyone else like that, you can talk with me or talk with the person who brought you here. I'm just going to pray over us. Uh, Prayer for those who are putting that decision into practice through prayer and for the rest of us together. And as you pray, just pray this in your heart uh, for all of us, whether you're a Christ follower or maybe uh, you're still examining the claims of Jesus. Father in heaven, we thank you There's no other religion that will allow us to call the maker, the judge, our father. But we thank you that everything about the Christian message is there was bad news and now there's good news. The bad news that the judge had to judge sin. The bad news that we had fallen into sin and that we deserved the punishment. But the good news that God loved us so much that he did not want us to bear the weight of our sin on our own. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus who is perfectly man and perfectly God to live the life as our substitute, fully man, but then to die death, fully man, but only the price that a perfect God could pay. Thank you that in doing that, You gave us life, and you gave us hope. We believe that you did that in human history, but we also believe that you did that for us. And I believe that you did that for me. So be my Savior and be my Master. Help me to be the person you want me to be. And for those of us in here who've already made that decision, Father, take us deeper into you. May we not be afraid of you. May we not be afraid to confess, but to know the glorious promise that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and you are just to forgive us our sin and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Thank you so much that you would do that for us. We love you because you have loved us first. And even knowing our sin, you love us still. Thank you, O love that will not let us go. We rest our weary souls in you. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray.